Bibles and turn with me to the book of Luke today as we continue our worship in hearing the word of God. Luke chapter 3, verses 1 through 20 is where we'll be. Luke chapter 3, verses 1 through 20. Okay, Luke chapter 3, verse 1 through 20. And uh, since the passage is I'm a little on the longer side, I'll, I'll read the sermon within, uh, the, ser- the, the passage within the sermon today. Luke chapter 3, verse 1 through 20. Well, Luke chapter 3, verse 1 through 20 is about a man named John the Baptist. And if you have been with us, you know that John the Baptist has a very, a very prestigious kind of a resume here. He has come from godly parents. He, his birth was announced by the angel Gabriel. He was a Nazarite in his devotion. He was filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb in a time when the majority of the people were not, were never filled with the Holy Spirit. He turned many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord their God, and he was the forerunner of the Messiah. Lastly, he was the prophet of the Most High God. By any measure, John the Baptist was called to greatness. Uh, his, uh, the angel Gabriel said of him that he will be great in the sight of the Lord. Not only that, but the testimony of Jesus Christ himself tells us how great John the Baptist was. He said, truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. High praise from the creator of the world. You know, if anyone had a reason to boast in themselves or to be proud of what they've done, it would be John. John should be and could have been very proud of the work that God had used him to do in in this world. But what added to John's greatness is that he didn't boast in himself. His whole life was devoted to pointing to the greatness of another, as we know. And the ministry of John the Baptist prepared people for the people, for the person and ministry of Jesus Christ. And then whenever we study John the Baptist, we too are prepared for the person and the ministry of Jesus Christ. Especially if you're here, we, uh, we, we have the great privilege of looking at John the Baptist today. And we get to study his life. But afterwards, we don't sing of, thank you, John the Baptist. We don't sing, praise you, John the Baptist. We don't say, how great is John the Baptist. We instead, because of the ministry of John the Baptist, we sing how great Jesus is. We sing our praise to Jesus. We sing, thank you, Jesus. And that's what we hopefully will gain from our time in the Word of God this morning. Even as we're studying the life of a man named John the Baptist, we will see how his life pointed to the life of one greater. And in, by way of encouragement, uh, we will be encouraged by his message, but we'll also hopefully just be challenged so that our lives might point to the one who is greater, point to the light who has come into the world. All right, so as we arrive at chapter 3 this morning, uh, we are moving into a new section. Uh, as far as uh, the Gospel of Luke goes, we looked at chapters 1 and 2 as an introduction to the life of Jesus. We've seen his, his, the narratives of his birth and his childhood. But now in chapter 3, all the way through chapter 4, verse 13, we see what's called the, the preparation for the ministry of Jesus. The ministry of Jesus will begin in chapter 4, verse 14. But here in chapter 3, 1 through 4, 13, we see this preparation for his ministry. All four segments, whether we look at today the forerunner of Jesus or the baptism of Jesus or the genealogy of Jesus or the temptation of Jesus, all of them show us how Jesus is qualified to be the representative of, of humanity and as well as Israel as the Messiah and the, the, 
Christ. Now, in addition to this understanding, a, a study of the ministry of John the Baptist is needed so that our lives, like so many of those whom he ministered to, might be directed to Jesus Christ. And so hopefully this, <clears throat> today, we're, after we're done, uh, we won't be saying, oh, man, what a great man John the Baptist was. But instead, we'll say, what a great Savior, what a great Messiah, what a great Christ that he pointed to. Anyways, as an outline for us today, we're going to see a six-point outline, six, six things we can draw out from this passage. And there's six ways <clears throat> that the ministry of John the Baptist prepares us for the ministry of Jesus Christ. Six ways that John, the, the person of John the Baptist, prepares us for the, the person of Jesus Christ, even. So, six ways. Let's take a look then as we read this text and we'll draw out these six principles. We'll have to do it uh, pretty quickly because we have so many points, but six points. And this is the first point. The first way that John the Baptist ministry prepares for the ministry of Jesus is that John's ministry preached repentance. He preached repentance. He, he preached this um, a particular message, and it was a message of repentance. We read in verse 1 to 3 these words of John chapter 3. <clears throat> now in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, and Herod was the tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip was tetrarch of the region of Ithurea and Trachonitis, and Lysanias was tetrarch of Abilene. In the high priestess, priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness. <clears throat> in his usual detailed precision, Dr. Luke, uh, our, the author of the gospel, provides for us these very specific details regarding the historical setting of this, uh, this uh, passage of John's ministry. No less than seven historical figures are given here. And so that's pretty significant. He's not just saying, he's not just giving us the date, but uh, Luke is giving us a, a, a historical, political, religious background, a setting for that days. It's the, the, air, the, the feeling of the type of, uh, of, of culture that the people and times that the people lived in. Tiberius Caesar now ruled over the Roman Empire after his father-in-law, Augustus, had died. Similarly, upon his death, Herod the Great's sons, Archelaus, Herod Antipas, and Philip, each ruled a third of his kingdom. They were called tetrarchs. Archelaus, uh, we don't see his name mentioned here, He's, is, is not mentioned because he was deposed by Caesar and then replaced by a series of men called governors. And among those governors was one called, eventually, Pontius Pilate. Now, in addition to the political leaders that are mentioned here, we see a series of religious leaders. Uh, uh, there was Annas, who was a high priest. He served from uh, 86 to AD 15. <clears throat> and uh, though he was deposed by Caesar, uh, he was deposed at, in AD 15. He continued to have a great influence among uh, the religious life of Israel because all of those sons, all those who followed as high priests were either his sons or uh, grandsons as well as his son-in-law. And Caiaphas was his son-in-law. Caiaphas was the, technically the high priest at the time, but Annas was the one who uh, really had the power and the influence. From the mention of all these, uh, <coughs> of all these people, it allows us to kind of uh, narrow down the dates. And many people today uh, hold that this uh, event, these events take place around either AD 26 or AD 28 and 29. But <coughs> nevertheless, the overwhelming kind of feeling that one gets from these historical details is that Luke records for us, is recording for us, actual history. He's not just saying once upon a time. He's saying in the days of Tiberius, 
in the days of Pontius Pilate, in the days of Herod, in the days of Philip, in the days of uh, 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 Lysanias, in the days of Annas and Caiaphas. These are all specific people that tells us that Luke is writing about specific issues. What's more, while all these powerful players ruled their respective territories within Israel, we see that God acts in and, in and through this time period. Uh, his, what's more, God does not need any of these powerful people. Yes, powerful people rule our world, as presidents and emperors and prime ministers and whatnot, but God rules over them all. His word works through in, in and through his creation. And what's kind of interesting that his word does not come to any of these political leaders. They would have had great opportunity, great voices, but they don't, the word of God doesn't come to any one of them. The word of God comes to a relative stranger who was relatively odd, even by Jewish custom, because he was a guy who lived in the desert, in the wilderness. His name was John. And like an Old Testament prophet, John was called to serve the, God, serve the Lord. The word of God came to him. And therefore, as like a prophet of old, his responsibility was to bring that word to others. His ministry took place in and around the Jordan River, we're told. His ministry was, as, we, as many of us that call him by name, John the Baptist, was associated with baptism. Yet, note correctly that his ministry was not baptism. He was not about baptizing, per se. His ministry was about preaching. What does it say that he came to do? Chapter 3, verse 3. He came into all the district around the Jordan, preaching. It doesn't say baptizing, it says preaching. He came preaching a message. And the preacher should be an announcer, a herald, someone who came to announce something. And John came to announce something. His message that he came to announce was the word of God, and the word of God was a call to repentance. His job was to, his role was to prepare the people for the coming of the Messiah, prepare for the Lord's salvation. And so he called people to repent for the forgiveness of their sins. They were to turn away from sin and turn or return to their God. This repentance was for the purpose of forgiveness, we learn. And then, and after that repentance for the forgiveness of sins, as an outward sign of that repentance, John baptized them in water. And people responded to his message. People responded. The crowds came to be baptized. Baptism was a unique uh, calling even for in those days. And that it was, normally it was the Gentile proselytes. When they came to, to the Jude Jewish faith, they were then baptized. A Jewish person never needed to be baptized. They were already, one, they were already part of the faith by the very fact that they were born into the, uh, the, uh, the Jewish family. But here, even Jewish people were called to be baptized remind them of their need that they too needed to repent for the forgiveness of their sins. So John preached, repent for the forgiveness of their sins. And though John's ministry would come to an end at some point, his message continued because that message, repent for the forgiveness of your sins, is a familiar message, isn't it? It's the message of Jesus Christ. In Luke chapter 24, verse 47, we read this. He says, the resurrected Jesus said this. He said, that the, all the things about me had to be fulfilled and that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. That is, 
that repentance for forgiveness of sins was a message that Jesus, Jesus wanted to be proclaimed in his name. John's message was essentially the same message of the risen Christ for all today. So anyone here, if you, if you have need of forgiveness this morning, if you are a sinner, if you have come to the place to realize that you are someone who has a broken relationship not only with God, but with the people in your world, and man, it can manifest with the people in your lives, whether it's your, your spouse or whether it's with your, your children, whether it's your parents or whether it's your friends and your lo- love, other loved ones. Sin manifests in different, many different ways. It manifests, but ultimately, the solution to sin is the need for forgiveness. And John, who came to preach the very message that Jesus came to preach, said we need to repent, turn from our sins, and turn to God for that forgiveness of sin. Salvation begins with repentance. And the flip side of the repentance, the other side of the coin is faith. But it is in the name of not John, but in the name of Jesus. Anyways, we see that's the first point. And that's kind of just the, the, the sort of a setting for us. But we see a second way that John's ministry points to Jesus' ministry and that John's ministry fulfilled prophecy. John's ministry fulfilled prophecy in verse 4 to 6. Luke writes, as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every ravine will be filled, and every mountain and hill will be brought low. The crooked will become straight, and the rough roads smooth, and all flesh will see the salvation of God. Luke here uh, is recording for it records for us and quotes Isaiah chapter 40 verses 3 through 5 which we actually read in our call to worship this morning and Luke writes it here as a basically as a, as a <coughs> explanation that John's ministry was a fulfillment of prophecy see remember Luke was writing to uh, a man named Theophilus Theophilus was uh, most likely a God-fearer that is someone who was a Gentile who came to faith to the Jewish faith he may have been a proselyte, or he may have just been a, you know, simple a God fearing. I mean, not quite a proselyte, but having followed the Jewish practices, and he and ha- because once having come to the Jewish faith and with Christianity uh, um, uh, taking root in the land, and seeing he saw the opposition of many of the Jewish religious leaders, and people like Theophilus would have wondered and doubted: Is our faith, is this Christian faith, legitimate? Because it's, it's odd that here I am, the practicing Jewish faith, and all of a sudden the Jewish leaders no longer are supporting this. Is this some, is this a cult? Is this something heretical? Is this uh, some aberrant doctrine that we're holding to? This guy. And so the desire to know the truth, Luke writes and Luke explains through, uh, in fact, throughout the gospel, that no, Jesus' ministry is the very fulfillment, the ultimate fulfillment of, of the law, the prophets, the scriptures, it's the end result, the goal of all Jewish faith. And so he quotes here from Isaiah 40 to describe that even the forerunner of the Messiah, even John the Baptist's ministry is foretold in the scriptures. Just as we've already seen in chapters 1 and 2, that Jesus' birth, Jesus' early life, and his background were all foretold in the, in the scriptures as well. 
So John is the fulfillment that we find out here of the promised voice. The one who in the wilderness would cry out to people to make way, prepare, get ready for the coming of the Lord. Get ready for the salvation that is coming. The Messiah is coming, so make way and get ready now. So John would not only be a fulfillment of Isaiah, but he would also be fulfillment of the prophecies in Malachi. Chapter 3, verse 1, chapter 4, verse 5 as well. See, John's ministry was a fulfillment of God's plan. And thus, the one he would point to would also be a fulfillment of God's plan. We read, we read, also, we read in Luke 24, 47 earlier. In 24, 45, 46, we read this. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Jesus uh, taught the, these two men on the road to Emmaus to understand all that the scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures spoke. And he said to them, thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead on the third day. That everything that takes place in the life of Jesus are, is a fulfillment of scripture. Even his forerunner is a fulfillment of scripture. John's fulfillment of prophecy prepared his hearers for the Jesus Christ fulfillment of prophecy. And this is important for us today, uh, especially today after 2,000 years, because many people after 2,000 years have forgotten the reality, the historical fact of Jesus. We now only have the scriptures. And many people look at the scripture and they say, well, that's just, that's like a Lord of the Rings. No, that's just like, you know, uh, the Iliad. You know, these are just all myths. These are just, uh, you know, uh, these are not history. And there's a doubt. They choose not to accept that Jesus Christ is real. The events of Christ's life is real. But we have the scriptures. And if, you're, if you, you take the time to study the scripture and find out the, even the backgrounds of these, when these books are written, who they're written by, you will find out that the Old Testament scriptures were written way before the New Testament scriptures. And you find out that the Old Testament scriptures these were way, came way before Jesus' birth. And, and you can find countless, even if we say hundreds, of prophecies of Jesus that are ultimately fulfilled in his life and still are waiting to be fulfilled. We see that in New Testament records for us how Jesus fulfilled all these scriptures for all to see and hear today. So John preached the baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins and fulfillment of prophecy. We see how he prepared the way for the, for the Messiah. But we see a third, that John had a corollary message. Yes, he preached the message of repentance. That was his main theme. But there's a corollary message to his, war to his preaching of repentance. And that is John's ministry warned of judgment. Along with repentance, he says, why do we need to repent? Because judgment is coming. Verse 7 through 9. Let's look at the scriptures. So he began saying to the crowds who were going out to be baptized by him. Notice he says crowds, by the way. It's multiple crowds. It was just not just one crowd, but just crowd upon crowd upon crowd were coming to be baptized by him. And he said, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? <clears throat> Therefore, bear fruit in keeping with repentance and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham for our father. For I say to you that from these stones, God is able to raise up children for Abraham. Indeed, the axe is already laid at the root of the trees. So every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. An interesting bit of gospel harmony is that in Matthew's account, the parallel account in Matthew, <clears throat> was when, it is when John saw that the Pharisees and Sadducees were coming for baptism that he said these words that are recorded here in Luke, he said them to them directly. But Luke, however, states that John said these words to the crowds, to the crowds in general. 
In fact, the tense of the verb implies that this was a recurring message of John. And so <clears throat> you can just imagine that uh, it was probably that Jesus, or excuse me, John, said these words particularly directed to the, the Pharisees and Sadducees, but it was spoken in a loud, in, a, in the setting of all the crowd so that everyone would hear. And his message, his corollary message was that God's wrath is near. That is, the wrath is coming. The axe is already laid at the root of the tree, is a picture of it. Even as he is calling people to repentance, John knows, just as you and I will know today, when you call people to believe, when people will come and say they believe, that not all are genuine. Just because someone says they're a believer doesn't necessarily mean that they are a believer. Someone says, you know why? Okay, <clears throat> they might come and, and worship. I mean, we cannot, and the fact is we can never know for sure because none of us can see into the heart of any of us. Only God knows. <clears throat> and so John warns all these who are coming to claim they're all getting baptized, saying, yeah, I've repented for the forgiveness of sins. And he's warning them. And there's a warning because their judgment is coming. You brood of vipers. That's the, you know, that's good preaching kind of rhetoric right there. You brood of vipers. <laughs> uh, so remember that next time I address you as you brood of vipers. Okay. Verse 8 is there, and it brings out these important principles of Scripture. And he challenges the, all who are coming to, say, to repent for the forgiveness of sins. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. He calls them to repent, but, and his judgments in, does not bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Here's an important principle of Scripture, that genuine repentance, those who come to the Lord, will bear fruit. Their lives will be changed. When you come to Jesus, when you come to faith in Him, you're, you're just not going to remain the same person. You're going to be a transformed person. You're going to be a born-again person. You're going to be a new person. And your life will reflect that. Doesn't mean you're going to be without sin. We all will wrestle with sin for the rest of our lives because we dwell in our sinful, uh, in sinful flesh. And our, we are still possessed our sin nature. But there is a change. God is doing a work in each and every one of your hearts. And he's making you more like Christ. John warns uh, these who are coming to be baptized for their repentance for their sins. He warns them not to rest their salvation on their, their heritage, their Jewish heritage. Some mistakenly believe that simply being descendants of Abraham, that they were already saved because of that fact. But they were wrong. The same mistake can be made today even by those of us who are church-going people. Maybe you, you grew up in the church and you came from a Christian family. Perhaps you're a family, you belong to a family of an elder or a pastor even. And that, therefore, that, that must make you a Christian. I've always heard the gospel in my family. Uh, you know, and, and yes, I, I believed it even, you might even say. saved by your heritage. You're not saved by simply saying you believe in the Lord. You're not saved by having prayed a prayer alone. You're, you are saved in, in your, the genuineness of your heart. You have repented and genuinely you believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. And how do you know that you're genuinely repented, you will see true repentance. If you 
look at your lives, brothers and sisters, and this is that, man. This is all a challenge for all of us. This is, a, this is kind of the, the, the ethical application we should all draw from this passage. Should we look at our lives honestly before God? Is, is not my judgment upon you? Is all sh- we should examine it and go, God, God would judge our own lives, each of us here. But if we do not see any fruit in our lives, if we don't see any change, if we're not looking for our, if that's not, it's not perfection, if we don't see a change of our hearts, change of our attitudes, change of the way we live our lives, change of the things we want to do, things that give us delight, things that we pursue, if we don't see that change, if we see zero change, I plead with you to re-examine your faith and your conduct before the Lord. Because as the scriptures tell us, you are in danger of judgment. Your faith genuine your repentance may not be genuine now especially if you're a young believer uh, there will be time for faith if but for those of us here that have been believers for a long time if we don't see that change the imagery of verse 9 is very clear ask is already laid at the root of the tree Many of us are here. The axe is already laid at the root of our tree. We don't know if we're going to be alive tomorrow. We don't know if we're going to be alive next week. Some of us will have, think we have our whole life ahead of us, and we're not going to see any fruit. Be ready. The axe is always laid at the root of any tree. And what's more, worse is every tree that does not bear fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. genuine follower of Jesus Christ will bear fruit. And John's ministry warned of this judgment. And that's the, the fourth point. John's ministry called for fruit. He warned of judgment if you don't bear fruit, but he said he calls us to bear fruit. Verse 10 to 14. And the crowds were questioning him, saying, then what shall we do? And he, answered, and he would answer and say to them, the man who has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And the one who has food is to do likewise. And some tax collectors also came to be baptized, and they said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than what you have been ordered to. Some soldiers were questioning him, saying, And what about us? What shall we do? And he said to them, Do not take money from anyone by force, or accuse anyone falsely, and be content with your wages. Naturally, of course, the people wanted to know, What are the fruits then in keeping with repentance? What shall we do? was asked, asked three times. And this is not... What shall we do to be saved? But what shall we do as evidence of our faith? What shall we look for in our lives to see this transformation? Now, those of us that are religious people might be expecting something like, well, read your Bible and pray, or join the membership of the church, or serve in the church. And for sure, those are biblical things to do. But John answers with none of those answers. John answers with a very concrete, daily, ethical answer. He provides an answer to the crowds, to the tax collectors, as well as to the soldiers. And one, and if we look at the answer, we could just summarize it, because we don't have time to look at the details of it all. We could just summarize it as the command to love your neighbor. How do we know? What shall we do? Love your neighbor. You have some, if you have two or th- one thing, and you see your neighbor who has none of it, love him and share with him. How do you show you? By loving, by loving your neighbor. Don't take, don't steal from them. Don't demand from them more than what's obligated them. Don't threaten them by force so they would extort them. Love your neighbors. 
the genuine truth of genuine repentance is, show, is shown in how you treat your neighbor. May we pray. What's more, we see it particularly as it's applied in how we use our material possessions. Recall Jesus' instructions in Matthew 6, 19 and 20 when he said, do not store up for yourselves uh, treasures in heaven. Well, I'm a little ahead of myself. <laughs> but store up treasures for yourselves in heaven. Don't just store do not store for yourselves treasures on earth, but store for yourselves treasures in heaven. Okay. Uh, for where your treasure is, there your heart is also. And we, that principle teaches us that basically your heart is reflected in what you do with your material treasures. Because your earthly treasures, do you use them for God's glory? Are you, are you generous with what God gives you? Do you share with those in need? Do you enjoy giving to others, especially those in need? Do you give the Lord's word faithfully? Those kinds of questions. There's how you spend your money, how you use it. It reflects, uh, reflects your, uh, your relationship with God. And, of course, how you use your money should be used in a way that shows that you love your neighbor. Our material positions are given to us so we might be provide for, for our families and our, ourselves, but it's also meant to be a blessing to others. It's not a mistake that a love for God is seen in how one loves for others. You know, this is where this passage in Matthew 22 comes into play. The one whom John pointed to, Jesus Christ, of course, would teach this very same thing. When asked for the greatest commandment, he said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. But then he added, the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. See, Jesus taught very clearly that if you love the Lord your God, you're going to love your neighbor as yourself. You want to know in your heart that you really love God? You'll be seen day to day that you love your neighbor. Aren't you really? not a mistake to love your neighbor the fruits of john the fruits that john called for are the same kind of fruits that jesus christ called for to love your neighbor all right fifthly john's ministry also pointed to jesus christ and that ultimately john's ministry magnified christ his ministry was not making himself great but he was about making christ great acknowledging the greatness of god of jesus 15 and 17 of chapter 3 now while the people were in a state of expectation and all were wondering in their hearts about John as to whether he was the Christ. John answered and said to them all, As for me, I baptize you with water. But one is, co is coming who is mightier than I, and I'm not fit to untie the thong of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to thoroughly clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. John's ministry was a successful ministry by, uh, definitely by outward, uh, by outward measurements because crowds were going to him. The other, uh, even the other, if we look at the other uh, parallel passages, we see that <laughs> some spoke in hyperbole, all Israel went to him, all Judea went to him. Many had heard him preach. Many went to be baptized in him. Many, uh, because of him, were expecting the coming of the Christ, the Messiah. And so inevitably, some even began wondering, if he was the Christ, if he was the Messiah. But John responds by humbly exalting, not himself, but the Christ who was to come. He points out that the one who is coming is mightier than him, than himself. He's, in fact, he's not even, he says, I'm not even fit to untie the thong sandals. The tie, the tie, untie the thong one sandals in order to wash their feet was the, the work of, of a slave. And that's, you can expect this from Isaiah John 13. 
and Jesus washed his disciples' feet. He untied the thong of all their sandals. John the Baptist here says, I'm not fit even to untie his sandals. I'm not even fit to be his slave. But the most significant difference between John and the Messiah is John points out that he baptizes in water, but the one who is coming to Christ will baptize with Holy Spirit and fire. Now some, when they hear this, this baptism by Holy Spirit and fire, they think of immediately of, of the, the day of Pentecost, of Acts of chapter 2, when the Holy Spirit came upon him and dwelt the, like a dove and, and dwelt and the people started speaking tongues and, and dwelt upon over their heads like a flame of fire. And that, while that is a possibility, uh, I believe the immediate context would lead, lend towards a different interpretation. That th- this Jesus baptizes with Holy Spirit and fire in the sense that he will he baptizes with both, but it, he'll baptize you with either one depending upon who you are. If you are one who repents and believes, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. But if you are one who does not repent, does not believe, he will baptize you with fire. See, the baptizing with the Holy Spirit is, from, is a reference from 1 Corinthians 12, 13. The baptism with the Spirit that takes place there when we're baptized into the body of Christ by Jesus himself. But to baptize with fire, on the other hand, is to be placed not, only, not into the body of Christ, but into eternal separation from God in hell. And verse 17, I believe, draw, brings that out, the, the, the contrast of those who repent and those who do not. He's winnowing for, he's, it's like he's coming to the threshing floor and he's getting ready to separate the wheat from the chaff. And he, what's he going to do? He's going to gather the wheat to himself and he's going to throw out the chaff into the fire. And that's the picture of both the Holy, baptism of the Holy Spirit and the baptism of fire. <clears throat> John the Baptist can neither take anyone to heaven nor can he send them to hell. But the one who is coming after him, who is mightier than he, can do both. And John's ministry continually magnified the Christ. We read in the Gospel of John about, about John the Baptist, that there came a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify about the light so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. John's ministry pointed to the, the Christ. He pointed to the light of the world, the one who was coming. You know, it's kind of significant on this Sunday. Uh, it's significant, particularly if uh, those of you who know or are familiar with the ministry of Pastor John MacArthur. Uh, this uh, marks today, this Sunday, the 50th anniversary of his first sermon at Grace Community Church. 50 years in one church. Most of us aren't even alive 50 years, much less preaching a church for 50 years. With faithfulness. But what I appreciate, and I'm sure what happened there, is that even though people will praise, acknowledge what John has done, Pastor John has done, that he himself will simply do what he's always done, is that in his preaching, he's always faithfully pointing people to the light, who is Christ. In fact, I, I, I was listening to him on a, uh, oh, this, the Ben Shapiro uh, podcast. Anyways, those guys, anyways. I was listening to him on that because he was talking about, you know, it's a secular podcast. Totally secular. But what was John, John MacArthur doing? He was constantly going back to Jesus, pointing people to Jesus. And we do, and Ben Shapiro, by the way, is an Orthodox Jew. Telling you who's the name of Jesus. And he goes, it's a very, very rich uh, podcast, by the way. Uh, no plug, no, no pressure, of course. But it's amazing how, uh, what I appreciate about 
whether it's John the Baptist or John MacArthur, we find examples of the time in ministry that you and I are to have. That our lives should not be, even though he's brought on to be a political show, but he points people to Jesus. That's what we need to do. Whatever you're interested in, whatever, you know, your sides you may take in this world on whether it's politics or any other thing, what teams root for, our lives ultimately is this or one thing. We point people to the light. We point people to Jesus. Our words and our lives should always be testifying that Jesus Christ is Lord of your life. Well, last thing, finally, John's ministry challenged all people. He challenged all kinds of people, all realms of people. Verse 18 to 20. And with this. But with many other exhortations, John, he preached the gospel to the people. But when Herod the Tetrarch was reprimanded by him because of Herodias, his brother's wife, and because of all the wicked things which Herod had done, Herod also added this to them all. He locked John up in prison. Luke summarizes the message of John the Baptist as simply in verse 18 as the gospel. John preached the gospel with many other other exhortations. It is the, the good news is what the gospel is. It's the good news of salvation from sin in the coming of the messianic king. What John preached to all people, by the way, is what Jesus Christ came to preach to all people, right? Who else came to preach the gospel? Jesus did. Mark chapter 1, verse 14 and 15, we read, Now after John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee. It's like without missing a step, Jesus steps right in, preaching what? A whole other message? No. He preached the gospel of God. And saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Jesus, like John, preached the gospel and called people to repent and believe. John's ministry, his ministry of calling people to repentance was not limited to only the poor and the downtrodden. His ministry reached also into the halls of the rich and powerful. John was not afraid to call people to repentance. And by the way, I, I don't necessarily mean that all of us should have this kind of ministry. Don't go around going around and uh, writing uh, President Trump or our, our governor and saying, you all need to repent right now. Okay? That's God calling you to do that. But John's ministry was a ministry to call all to repentance. And wherever sin was found, he would call it sin. And that's, by the way, is appropriate for even us. When there's sin in the world, we should call it sin. No matter who it is sinning. Even if it's your pastor. Sin is sin. Sin must be addressed at some point. And so John, we read here in verse 19 and 20, was not afraid to even call to repentance. Herod, the Tetrarch, his Herod Antipas, who ruled over Galilee. Because uh, his, his sin was that he had basically committed adultery with his brother's wife and married her and even uh, you know, and did other wicked things. But of course, Herod didn't like that and he had John arrested. Mark 6 uh, verse 17 and following will record how eventually John the Baptist got, was beheaded uh, for, uh, for calling out the sin of, of Herod. John's ministry would be a ministry that would always foreshadow Christ's ministry. For Christ when he came to would preach the gospel to all, the poor and the rich, the weak and the powerful, the Gentile and the Jew, Jesus would courageously face all opposition. He would call sin for sin. He would challenge the religious leaders, the political leaders. He would tell the powerful as well as the poor that they need forgiveness of sins. They need the gospel. They need to repent and believe. Never did that, did the opposition sway Jesus 
from his mission to preach the gospel and provide salvation because ultimately he's saying we look like him. That's when it is unusual so that he would be arrested, tried, and crucified on the cross in place of Jesus. John, John's ministry was a ministry that pointed to the Son. John came to preach a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins as a fulfillment of prophecy. He warned of the coming judgment and the importance of bearing fruit in keeping with that repentance. His ministry magnified the one who would come after him, Jesus the Christ. And he challenged all to repent and believe in the gospel. His life and ministry was one that would point to Christ. In fact, I think it would be best summarized if we, as we conclude with John, the, the Apostle John's uh, description of him. When John wrote, when John answered about Jesus, he said, he must increase, but I must decrease. It was not baptism that forgave his sins. It was not repentance that forgave his sins. It was not John's preaching that forgave his sins. All that John, nothing about John the Baptist himself or his ministry forgave any sins. He simply pointed to the one, the one who was coming, the coming one, the Messiah, the Christ. For it is he who would come and forgive sins. John merely came as the forerunner of this one. And he preached a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of your sins. And this is who he is, and this is who he's pointing to. And it is Jesus himself. May we point to Jesus. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for the life and ministry of John the Baptist. We pray that we would learn from his example, that we would see Christ in him. Father, that we would first, that we would also strive to allow Christ to be seen in our lives. Father, we also pray that we who have repented and believed, that you would cause us to examine our own hearts. Show us in our lives, Father, with the fruits, that we might rejoice in them and give you praise for the, what you are doing in our lives. But Father, if we examine our hearts and if we don't see any fruit, well, we ask that you would produce it in our hearts. Or that if you would confirm instead that we are, maybe we have not genuinely believed, the Lord, today would be a day of genuine repentance and faith in Christ. And that we would then, by the power of your spirit, bear fruit in keeping with that repentance. Lord, help us to be people who not just say we love you, but that we show that we love you by loving one another and loving our neighbors. God, we pray that wherever we go, that we would be those who would point to the life of the Lord Jesus Christ, that is our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you and praise you for him. In his name we pray.